Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son. Beautiful Savior, Lord of all nations, Son of God and Son of Man. Well, we are going to be taking a break from our 1 Samuel series. We've been working through the book of 1 Samuel here at Redeemer for quite some time. But we are going to take a short five-week break because Advent begins next week. And I like, as we lead up to celebrating the birth of Christ, to do sermons that are relevant to the incarnation, to the birth of Christ. And so we are going to be doing an Advent sermon series where we sort of examine and establish the authenticity, the truthfulness of the creed that we confess today. Our sermon series is going to be the creed of Chalcedon. This creed that I forced you to confess, this theology that I put into your mouth against your will, is it biblical? All that fancy terminology and all that language, is it biblical? We are going to establish the value of this important and ancient creed. And by the way, this also means that for the next four weeks, we are going to be reciting the creed every single Sunday, except most likely I will only have you recite the portions that we're going to be examining during the scripture time. So you won't probably have to say that whole thing like you did today, but I wanted us at the beginning of this series to at least just hear it all in its entirety, in its context, and to confess it. And we are going to be looking at this every single week. And so the question that's probably on your mind is, I mean, I know what I just read not long ago, but what is the Chalcedonian Creed? What is it, and why should I care about it? And I think to understand this, we need to take a big step back. And we need to begin way back at the establishment of what we call ecumenical councils. So let's look at councils for a moment. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15? Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Some of your Bibles might have a header to this section. And now if you remember, those headers, if your Bible has a header, those headers are not inspired. God did not put those in. Bible translators put those in. So those things can be misleading. They can be false. But I find them, generally speaking, very helpful. And mine calls this section the Jerusalem Council. Yours might say the same thing. Acts chapter 15. Let's look at the Jerusalem Council, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through the Phoenicia, both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. I want us to stop there. The biggest theological controversy of the New Testament, every age and every generation sort of has its own theological controversies. 
The biggest one for the New Testament was this issue of circumcision, but even circumcision was more of a symbol for the entire Mosaic law. When you were circumcised, that was your physical way of coming under the covenant and obeying the covenant. And you have to keep in mind that before the advent of Christ, this was the covenant that God's people were bound to. These were the laws that they were bound to. And these laws made a hard distinction between the covenant, the circumcised, the people of God, and the Gentiles. And generally speaking, the Gentiles were the unclean, the uncircumcised, the pagans, and the Jews, Israel, were considered the holy, the circumcised, the people of God. And so largely in many people's minds, salvation was an ethnicity. You had to be circumcised. You had to come under this covenant to be saved. And that's why very few Gentiles were saved. But even in the Old Testament, Gentiles could come under the Old Covenant. They were allowed to come under, but they would have to be circumcised and they would have to obey the Mosaic Law. So essentially, in the Old Covenant, if you wanted to be part of God's people, you had to become an Israelite. You had to become Jewish. And so what happened after the advent of Christ is he brought salvation and the gospel and a new covenant. There was this huge debate like, what do we do with Moses? What do we do with hundreds and hundreds of years of biblical tradition? And we see that there was a group of men, and it's easy to say these men were evil and wicked because they were of the party of the Pharisees. But the text identifies them as believers. These were good men. These were not men who were anti-Christ. They loved Christ. They believed in Christ. But as we know, in our, even in our own day and age and in our own lives, sometimes even those who love Christ and his word, sometimes we get things wrong. And so we have a, we have a group of men who were Pharisees, part of the Pharisaical school. And not all the Pharisees were bad. Some of them were believers. Some of them were good. Some of them were very wicked. Some of them were good. So we have some good believing Pharisees who are wrong about, well, what do we do with the Old Testament? And they were trying to carry this Old Testament principle into the New Testament. They were saying, listen, I have no problem with Gentiles believing in Jesus, but unless they're willing to be circumcised and unless they're willing to follow Moses, they're not saved. And this was a compelling argument. And so people didn't know. We had all these new believers. Christianity is a fledgling movement at this point. What's the truth? How do we know? And so how did the church seek to establish the truth of this principle? They established a council. All of the apostles that were in Jerusalem, the ones that weren't, came up to Jerusalem. And as verse 6 says, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And I would just, I'll let you read chapter, verses 7 through 21 on your own time. What ends up happening is the apostles make an incredible argument, both from scripture and experience. And the matter is settled. And they establish, no, circumcision is not necessary for salvation. Coming under the law of Moses is not necessary for salvation. The Gentiles are already being saved in our midst. They're being filled with the Holy Spirit, and they haven't been circumcised. So the elders and the apostles, the leaders of the Christian movement, they come together in a council, they debate, and they establish the truth of the matter. And so this begins, this text here becomes crucial for the early Christian movement. Many of the early Christians in the second and third and fourth century saw this as being somewhat of a blueprint for how churches, for how the Christian church can solve theological issues. And so seeing that in Acts 15, this council of religious leaders came together to fix, to solve, to answer this theological conundrum, from there, the church has historically then always sought to to, to defend the truth of Christianity by having the religious leaders come together in councils. And so over the centuries, 
Christianity has had councils meet to discuss and define theology. Now, there's an important distinction that has to be made throughout church history between what we call local and ecumenical councils. Local versus ecumenical councils. In church history, we see local councils, and that's just when Christian leaders from a particular region get together to solve a dispute that's relevant to their region or to their group. And so those councils are not trying to speak for the entire Christian community all around the world. They're just saying, hey, we've got this issue here. Let's go and settle it among ourselves. But there have been what are called ecumenical councils. And these were councils that were attempting to define theology for Christians in every generation in every place in the world. And we call these ecumenical. And the reason they're called that is because they would bring Christian leaders from every area where Christianity was popular. And I'll, I'll get to that more specifically in a minute. But Christian, Christian leaders representing every known place in the world, known place in the world, that had a Christian church there would come together. And so the idea was kind of like America, we have a representative government and your representatives basically get to be your voice. That's what's happening. These bishops, these leaders would come representing their area so that we could decide what is the Christian faith around the world? What is every Christian, what is every church confessing? And so they were intended to be universal opinions. Throughout the history of the church, we have seven historically, although the seventh one is really debated and it makes some breaks. And so I think we'll get into that in this sermon. We'll see how I do on time. But we have seven that uh, have happened throughout church history. We have Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon, Constantinople II, Constantinople III, and Nicaea II. And so what you'll realize is like, they, like the editors of your Bibles did in Acts 15, typically a council is named after whatever city it met in. So the Council of Nicaea, they met in Nicaea. The Council of Constantinople, they met in Constantinople. It's usually named after the city it met in. We have contemporary local confessions and creeds that do the same thing. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Augsburg Confession, right? So typically when these decisions are made, where they meet is where they get their names from. The council that we have, there was a council in Chalcedon, and that's why we have what's called the Chalcedonian Creed. Some people pronounce it Chalcedon. I pronounce it Chalcedon. It's, you know, tomato, tomato. But I like Chalcedon, so that's what you're going to hear from me. And this was considered the fourth of the ecumenical councils. So when the Council of Chalcedon met in 451, they were doing so to define not theology for Chalcedon, but for the theology that was definitional to the Christian faith. So in their opinion, if you disagree with Chalcedon, you are not a Christian. And I agree with them, and that's what I'm hoping to show in our sermon today, or in our series, that they did, in fact, get it right. Now, before we move on, it might be interesting to ask, where did ecumenical councils go? Like, why, you know, if you maybe have grown up in your Christian life and maybe have never heard of this before, you've never heard this topic before, and where, why hasn't any council met recently? There's a lot of theological controversies today. Would it wouldn't be nice to have all of our Christian leaders come together and meet and solve some of these issues? Uh, let me just briefly get into that. I think it's important history for us. The reason that we don't really see ecumenical councils anymore is because the world that we live in today simply does not have the organizational or theological unity that is required to make a council work. Go back to Acts 15. In the first century, the leaders of the Christian movement were very clear 
There was, there was no dispute over who our leaders were. You had your infallible leaders, the apostles, the ones who learned directly from Jesus Christ. They were the clear-cut religious leaders. If, if whatever you believed was inconsistent with the apostles, call it what you will, it's not Christianity. Everyone knew these are the leaders. But the Jewish leaders, these believing Pharisees, had legitimate authority over people. I remind you, it was Jesus himself who told people in the Gospels, don't do what they do, but you should do what they say. They were hypocrites, but they were legitimate, authoritative teachers of the law of God. And especially after the advent of Christ, the believing ones still maintained a position of authority, especially over the Jewish Christians. So everybody knew we've got our our believing Pharisees, we've got our apostles, these are our leaders. So you see how easy, there was so much organizational unity. You see how easy it was for these guys to meet and say, okay, everybody, here's what Christianity is. And everyone goes, okay, they're our leaders. We, We believe them, we trust them. And even after this this first century, in the second and third century, there was an incredible amount of organizational unity embraced by the church. The Christian church, now we debate in the Protestant world whether this was biblical or not, but regardless, just historically, whether it was apostolic or biblical, we can argue till we're blue in the face, the Christian church developed a system of church governance that made the church very organized. And what you had is you, you had local churches which were run by their elders and their deacons. But then above them, you would have bishops. And bishops oversaw multiple churches in a region. Uh, This is something many Protestants don't do today. Some do, like Lutherans have a very similar system to this. Episcopalians and Anglicans have a very similar system to this. Um, But most Baptist churches and many of the uh, um, Pado-Baptists, the Presbyterian churches in America, though they weren't Presbyterian, they were called Congregationalists because they believe in what's called the autonomy of the local church. So if you ever hear me use that phrase, the autonomy of the local church, what that means is that's a church governance that believes there should be no authority over the church other than obviously God and the scriptures themselves. So our church today is what we call an autonomous church. We're not affiliated with any um, denomination that has bishops that can oversee us. Uh, We don't have authorities above us. So the elders, other than obviously God and the word, the Bible is the authority of this church, technically. Um, But from a human standpoint, the elders are where it stops. But in the first century, in the second and third century, that was not the case. The elders had a boss. And then over time, this became more and more developed. And this is why Roman Catholicism has the Pope. They, they, the Roman Catholicism narrowed this so much that they kept creating these smaller and smaller layers until eventually it ends with one guy. And so Roman Catholicism considers the Pope, a.k.a. the Bishop of Rome, to be the bishop of the whole world. He oversees authority over every single Christian community in the world. And this development is not biblical and not apostolic. And so the papacy created a lot of splits and divisions in the church. But again, that's not for us today. The point is, is there was this very organized situation in the early centuries that unified the church. I have an authority above me that I need to listen to. And so when these authorities meet, we are all listening to them. And so an ecumenical council was taking these bishops from every region that oversaw these churches and bringing these bishops together, defining an issue and going home. And so it was very easy for people to say, listen, I'm I'm, I'm listening to my bishop. You're listening to your bishop and all the bishops agree. So it was easy to have a council and to settle disputes. We just don't have that kind of organizational unity today. I don't want the Pope speaking for me. I don't want the Eastern Orthodox Church speaking for me. Who are the bishops that represent Roswell? 
The Anglicans think it's one guy. The Eastern Orthodox think it's one guy. The Roman Catholics think it's one guy. The Lutherans think it's one guy. We just simply do not have the kind of structural organizational unity to have an ecumenical council because we would all send our own bishops, (laughs) our own representatives, and they would disagree. So it's just really not possible. Another thing that we lack is the political infrastructure. What ended up happening in the first and second and third centuries is Christianity exploded and grew. Eventually, Constantine was converted, and Christianity essentially became the religion of the empire. And what you'll find if you research these councils in this history is the emperors were heavily involved. And as a matter of fact, usually it was the emperors who called these councils. The emperors were the ones who set them up. So there was a relationship between the church and the state, and there was a relationship between all the churches in the world that made a council like this productive, beneficial, helpful, and even possible. We lack those things today. So you will never see an ecumenical council, a true ecumenical council, ever happen again. Well, I guess I can't speak. Who knows what will happen in the future? But probably won't. Not going to see one in your lifetime. I can guarantee you that. So that's kind of where they went away. And let me just say one other thing. is um, It's also sort of built into the DNA of ecumenical councils to not go on perpetually forever. The whole pur- purpose of a council was to establish these important basic boundaries. It wasn't to define every last detail of the Christian faith. So we have to ask the question, how often do we really need to have the basics defined? The the, the councils themselves would actually, for example, like in the Council of Ephesus, the third ecumenical council, the Council of Ephesus actually tried to declare no other council can make creeds anymore. We got to the third one and we already said we don't need any more creeds. So by their very nature, they were expected, we shouldn't need a lot of these. Like, let's just set the basics and then go and do your own thing, right? So we really don't have a need for it, and it's just structurally not possible. That leads me also to this. You see, that's why we as Protestants have kind of a unique relationship to the councils that many other people in the world don't. Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, they actually consider ecumenical councils to be infallible meaning they hold them to the same level as Scripture. They would call the ecumenical councils God-breathed, that God inspired this, it's perfect, it's infallible, it is therefore binding over your conscience the same level of authority that Scripture itself is. The Protestant world historically and today rejects this notion. You remember during Reformation Sunday, we talk a lot about sola scriptura. The Protestant Reformation believes Scripture alone is the only infallible word of God. Nothing is on the same level as Scripture. Scripture is over everything else. That includes councils. That includes confessions in local churches. So the Protestants do not see this as being ecumenical councils as being infallible. And by the way, we definitely win that debate um, because the Seventh Ecumenical Council was obviously wrong. And more than that, the pattern they get is from Acts 15. Let me tell you two problems with jumping from Acts 15, which is an infallible council, and we would agree with that, to ecumenical councils in general are infallible. Let me just give you two reasons why that's an improper jump to make. Number one, Acts 15 is a local council. It's technically a local council. Some people would argue that because the apostles represented everyone, but you can make a good case that this is a local council, and no one considers local councils infallible. It's only the ecumenical ones. But more importantly, what's important to notice about Acts 15? Who is it that's in the Acts 15 council? Who makes up half of that council? Apostles. (laughs) Yeah. So if you want to tell me an ecumenical council is infallible, I'll believe it. Just show me the apostles. 
If you've got prophets and apostles there, then, then yeah, that's infallible. But if you don't have prophets or apostles, then it's not infallible. The reason the Acts 15 council is infallible is because infallible men were there. There are no infallible men. And by the way, that's something Rome and East and Anglicans and Episcopalians, that's what everyone agrees with. Everyone agrees that there are no longer apostles and prophets living today. So we would say the councils did not have infallible men, therefore they're not infallible. Scripture can correct them. But nonetheless, Protestants have still historically found them helpful and beneficial. And they've still maintained these creeds. It's only been recent development where the Protestant churches have over time really grown further and further and further away from these creeds and from these confessions. In other words, the Protestant world is not what we would generally speaking call a creedal world or a confessional world because of their drifting away from these creeds and confessions. So let's move into that then. What's the difference then between a creed and a confession? A creed is a shorter theological statement. Like when we talk about creeds in this church, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, when we say the word creed, the creeds were meant to be short confessional statements. They were often produced by ecumenical councils, but not always. The Athanasian Creed and the Apostles' Creed were not made by a council. And the purpose of a creed, as I've mentioned briefly, is not to be exhaustive. A creed is not trying to tell you everything you have to believe about Christianity. Every last jot and tittle of the whole Christian faith has to be in this creed. It's quite the opposite. The purpose of a creed is to set very, very general boundary markers. It's just to say, this is basic Christianity 101. There's a lot to disagree on inside of this box, but we need something to set this box. So creeds are supposed to be boundary markers, and that's why they were intended to be universal. They were intended to be for the whole church. This should be something everyone can agree with. You could disagree over whether we baptize infants or not, whether we baptize someone three times or we only baptize them one time, uh, Arminianism versus Calvinism. None of that is in the creeds. None of it. It was not intended to be this exhaustive list of every doctrine you must believe, but it was important to say we have to be unified on some core essential basics. You can disagree over Calvinism, Arminianism, but if you think Jesus is not God, we have a big problem. That's not a minor dispute. That's a major dispute. That's what the creeds try to determine. What's a minor dispute? What's a major dispute? Another thing that the creeds then, because they were intended to be universal, they were intended to be part of church liturgy. And this is why we will bring them into our church and we will confess them together because they are beneficial. And I want to remind you, it might not seem beneficial to you, but let me remind you how valuable creeds were to a first, second, and third century world where many, many Christians were illiterate. Almost no Christian had their own Bible. YouTube didn't exist. Seminaries didn't exist. Mass book publications didn't exist. Ligonier didn't exist, right? You, creeds seem irrelevant to you because you have the world at your fingertips. You've got the word of God in your hand. You've probably got 50 of them collecting dust in your house somewhere. Multiple translations with editor's notes and backgrounds and histories. And when you have a question, you can Google it and you can go and look up stuff online and you have a whole library filled with theological works. It's very easy for you to determine your own theology. They didn't have that in the first century. 
How does a Christian go home and know what is the Christian faith? And when I go to work and I hear an Arian tell me Jesus is not truly God, he was created by God and he's a really powerful super angel, how does a Christian know whether that's true or not? They don't get to open up their Bible and show them the, the error. They don't have a Bible. The creeds were this invaluable way to give people short and helpful things that they could memorize and that they could recite so that when they go to work and they meet an Arian, they can say, oh no, I believe in one God, the Father, the maker of all things, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, his only begotten. Yeah, no, 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 that's wrong. The creed is what helped Christians learn their theology. This is what Augustine says about the Nicene Creed. We have, however, this universal faith in the Nicene Creed, which is known to the faithful and committed to memory, contained in a form of expression as concise as has been rendered admissible by the circumstances of the case. The purpose of this creed was so that individuals who are but beginners and sucklings among those who have been born again in Christ and who have not yet been strengthened by most diligent and spiritual handling and understanding of the divine scriptures should be furnished with a summary expressed in few words of those matters of necessary belief which were subsequently to be explained to them in many words as they were made progress and rose to the height of divine doctrine on the assured and steadfast basis of humility and charity. So here's what Augustine is saying. We have all these Christians that are brand new Christians. They don't know Christian theology. They don't have Bibles. So we're going to give them a quick summary of the Christian faith that they can memorize. And then we'll leave it to their teachers to further explain that and prove it from the scriptures. That's, they were educational tools. And the Protestant world continued to see these as educational tools. What is Christianity? Memorize the Apostles' Creed. You'll never have to worry about that question. Just memorize it. They were crucial in the Protestant world. This is different from what we refer to as confessions. You see, in this church, because in order to become a member, we have creeds you have to affirm, but we also have a confession. What's the difference? Well, confessions are a little bit different. They are intended to be larger bodies of doctrinal belief. Still not exhaustive. A confession is still not trying to give you everything you have to believe, but it's going to be much more uh, exhaustive than a creed is going to be. And so because of that, confessions are not meant to be universal for all churches everywhere. And that's why one of the ways we show that is we do not demand that in order to be a member of this church or to partake of communion at this church, you have to hold to our confession. Because our confession, we do not believe, has the authority to define all of Christian life. I might think it is that. Like, I might personally believe it is that. But we know that it, this purpose was never to kick people out of the kingdom. So if you disagree with our confessional standards, please come to the table. But if you disagree with our creeds, I would ask you not to. See the difference? Confessions are a little bit larger and they're localized, which is why if you want to know what the Anglicans believe, you just need to read the 39 Articles of Faith. If you want to know what the Lutherans believe, you just need to read the Augsburg Confession. If you want to know what Roman Catholics believe, you need to read the Catechism of the Catholic Church. If you want to know what Reformed Christians believe, there's a variety. You could look at the Helvetic Confession for the, uh, for the Belgium ones, the Westminster Confession for modern-day Presbyterians, the Second, Second London Baptist Confession for the Re Baptistic Reformed. Right? These are confessions that identify tribes, not universal, local expressions. And that's why, generally speaking, these are not intended to be used in worship. So I will sometimes do that. I will sometimes bring something from our confession. But generally speaking, if we're going to confess something in church, it's usually going to be a, the Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed rather than something from the confession. 
Now, we're going to get back to the Bible, I promise. I know this is not the most entertaining sermon I've ever preached. I realize that. But this is really important historical background coming up to understand the creed. And so let's get into really what is the heart and soul, I think, of what I wanted to discuss today, although it's not going to take as long as I just did, which is, do creeds then threaten sola scriptura? I, I think this is why so many Protestants are really leery of creeds. Like, I've, I've come in here, and, and I don't sound very Protestant-y. I, I kind of sound more like a Roman Catholic today to some people's ears, right? Like, here's this creed, and you must believe it, or you're not one of us, right? It, it, doesn't that sound kind of authoritarian? Does it sound kind of divisive? And it's like, I thought I was just supposed to believe the Bible. You want me to believe creeds? I thought I was just supposed to believe the Bible, and you'll even hear people say that. There are Protestants who will say that. No creed but Christ. You know what's the problem with that? That's a creed. That's a creedal statement. People say, I, I don't believe in creeds and confessions. I, I just believe my Bible. Okay, so tell me something about the Bible then. What do you believe about the Bible? And the second they start telling you, what are they doing? They're creating a confession of faith. You see, creeds and confessions are basically inescapable concepts. Everyone you meet is creedal. Even atheists are very creedal and very dogmatic, very confessional. It's really, it's not a matter of whether, but which. It's not really, it's not whether we'll be creedal, it's which creed will you believe. It's not whether we'll be confessional, it's which confession will you believe. But it's sort of an inescapable concept. And so I want to just briefly look at, was the purpose of these creeds to threaten the Bible? Were they trying to say the Bible's insufficient, you need this creed? Were they trying to say the Bible's inspired, but we're infallible too? That's how many Protestants, I think, view the creeds. Is there these authoritarian church documents that are not on the same level of Scripture? And if they're not on the same level of Scripture, then why do I need them? If I have the Bible, why do I need a creed, right? Protestants can have a very skeptical view of the creeds, and I do understand that. But I want to just give you my reasoning from the text of the Word of God why I do not think we should be threatened by creeds and why I think we need to embrace them. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. No more history lesson. It's time for the Word of God. Look at verses 14 and 16 with me. By the way, these, uh, the first sermon I ever preached in this church were on this, these verses. But I preached a very different sermon than I'm going to preach today. The Word of God gives us ability to do that. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There's two crucial things I want us to see in this text, and we're going to work backward through them. We're going to work backward through them. First thing, I want to ask a question, and I'll allow you to, to actually verbally respond to this. Does anyone's Bible in verse 16 mess with the format? Does the actual format of the printed text, is it adjusted or altered or messed with at all? Yeah, just by show of hands. How many people's Bibles do that? Just about everybody. Why did they do that? Bring attention to it. Yeah, that's very good. And you know why they wanted to bring attention to this? Because 
here's, here's how someone could respond contrary to that. Well, don't, don't I want to pay attention to verse 14 too? Is verse 14 important? Is verse 15 important? Why should I care so much about 16? The reason they format and indent it like that is because every textual scholar, anyone who knows the original language and is looking at the text will tell you, Paul is quoting from something here. This is a quotation. He's quoting from something. And we do this even in our own literature, right? If you were writing an essay, taking an English class, for, for many of us, it's been a long time, but right, if, if you're going to have a really long, and there's different citing standards, I get that. But generally speaking, you have a really long quote in your paper, what do you do? You indent it. You make format additions when you're quoting something. The texts do this to indicate to us that Paul is quoting from something here. What would be your first instinct? What do you think, typically, when a New Testament author is writing a letter and he quotes from something, what is he normally quoting? The Old Testament, and that's the right answer. But you can scour your Old Testament. You won't find this. So Paul's quoting from something, but it's not the Old Testament. And you want to know why they know he was quoting something? I don't have time to get into it today. As a matter of fact, I'm not qualified to get into it today. But the people who know the Greek can explain it to you. I can give you resources if you want to see this. But the Greek language demonstrates clear signs of poetic uh, expression. In other words, in the Greek, we lose a lot of this in the English, but in the Greek, there's a clear structural rhythm to this text. There's even a slight rhyme scheme to the text. The verbs and the grammar are used in a very bizarre way you wouldn't use naturally speaking. Everything about the Greek grammar of this text tells the scholars that this is a citation, some kind of hymn. And it's not Old Testament. And Paul tells us in verse 16 that this is something you're already familiar with, something we've been confessing together. Paul is quoting from a confession this church wrote. It's a hymn that they wrote. Now you might say, well, that's a song. A hymn is different from a creed. Not in the first century. In the first century, because of what we talked about, the purpose of these confessions and these creeds was to help people learn theology because they couldn't go home. You think when Timothy got this letter from Paul, did he make a photocopy of it and distribute it out to everybody? Timothy got the letter and he read it to the church, but they don't get to go home and study it. These people need help. And so they would make these creeds, they would make these hymns, and uh, my next door neighbors, uh, their kids are in classical uh, education and one of the things classical education does at a very young age is these kids learn history through song they put everything to song one time these kids they, they sang me like a 10 minute song that basically covered every major historical event from the death of Christ till today and they just and then Jerusalem fell and then, and they just sang the history of the world to me why do they do that because when singing putting something to a song helps you remember things it helps you memorize it and remember it. So what they did is they wrote a poem, they wrote a song, and they would chant this in church. They would cite it through chant so that people could better remember it and go home. So it is a hymn, but it's also a creed. This is a creedal confession. Some scholars will even refer to it as a, a, a creedal hymn. One scholar I love said this, this was a hymn in which men sung their creed. So what do we have here? We have the church using a confessional or creedal statement. So if anyone wants to dare say creeds and confessions are not biblical, Paul was okay with it. And by the way, isn't this a beautiful creed? Isn't this wonderful? If the modern evangelical church 
was to create a ecumenical council. Our creed would say something like this. God is wonderful and God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the evangelical creed. Look at this first century creed. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the whole world and taken up in glory. That's a creed. Uh, By the way, and we know that this was longer. Does anyone's Bible in verse 16, mine says he was manifested in the flesh. Does anyone's Bible say God was manifest in the flesh? Some of our early manuscripts read God, some read he. The most popular theory behind that, because the earliest ones read he. God is a later. The most popular reasoning behind that is some of the early copyists. Notice Paul quoted from something halfway through. So the subject has been left out. Who is he? So they added it in so that you knew who we were talking about. But we know the earliest manuscripts read he. So most likely this was just taken halfway through. So this was a longer creedal hymn that these people wrote themselves and they sing it and Paul says, good for you, don't forget it. It's not biblical, but it's biblical. And by the way, there's one other reason we know this. Look at verse 16. My translation says, great indeed, we confess. We actually have this word confession here. Now, your Bibles might translate this a little differently. There's different ways of putting it. But all of the scholastic work you can put into this is they are all recognizing this word in Greek that the ESV uses confess is a word to indicate a public common confession. The word, we, if anything, we actually really lack a good English word to really reflect it. But Paul is absolutely saying, don't forget about this mystery of godliness. And you know what it is. Why? Because we've created this little creed together. And when you come together, together, we corporately confess it. That we, we commonly assent, we give consent to this non-biblical creed. Or I should say extra-biblical creed. So confessionalism, creedalism... It's more in the Bible than you think. And by the way, I would just remind you of one of the most important creedal statements to ever exist, which is known as the Jewish Shema. And every, to this day, every Orthodox Jew has to wake up in the morning and recite the Jewish Shema. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Guess what that's from? Deuteronomy 6.4. And Jesus and the apostles repeated all the time in the New Testament. The Jews were a very creedal people. They were given the most important creed of their day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord was one. And that was important for them because what surrounded the nation of Israel? Polytheism. It was crucial in a polytheistic world for the Jews to remember there is one God. My creed tells me so. There is one God. Creedalism is not as against the scriptures as many Protestants, I think, naturally suspect. But more importantly, I want to get to verse 15. I said we're working backwards. 16 is beautiful, but look at verse 15. Paul says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. What does that mean? What's the house of God? Well, he tells us, which is the church of the living God. So we know he's talking about the Christian church. And how does he describe? What's the job? What's the purpose of the Christian church? A pillar and buttress of the truth. The job of the Christian church is to be, for the truth, a pillar and a buttress. What does a pillar do? What's a pillar? 
It holds something up. It supports it. So what is our job as a church? Is it to be the truth? Are we the truth? Is Redeemer Christian Fellowship the infallible truth? Is the Christian church at large the infallible truth? No, we learned in our Sunday school today, God is truth. His revealed word is truth. Our job is not to be the truth. We're not infallible. The church is not infallible. Creeds are not infallible. But it is the job of the church to take the truth and hold it up for the world. To be the pillar that holds it up and supports it. This is the truth. That's our job. We're also supposed to be a bulwark. What does a bulwark do? It defends. The job of the Christian church is not to be the truth, to create the truth, but it is our job to showcase it and defend it from errors. That's our job. That's what the church has been called to do. And that is how I see the creeds. The creeds are not claiming to be infallible revelation. They're not claiming to be the truth itself. They're not claiming to be truth from God the way the scriptures are. But they are saying there's a lot of errors out there and it's our job to defend the truth. Here's its defense. The creeds are saying the truth of God has been revealed to us. We need to make it known to the world. So they met in the council and they wrote these creeds and say, here's the truth. The creeds are merely the church's historical attempt to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. None of the council fathers thought they were infallible. That's a later evolution that Rome and the East added onto that. They don't claim to be infallible, but they do claim we have a job to do on this earth. And it's to make sure people know the truth. And it's to make sure people defend the truth. And that's why the beginning and the, and the end of the creed, which I have on the screen, that's exactly what they say. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess. So the creed is trying to teach you a proper confession of faith. And, and where did they get that from? As the prophets from the beginning declared concerning Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers handed down to us. They're not claiming to be scripture. They're not claiming to compete with scripture. They're not claiming to be infallible. They're merely claiming to tell you more clearly what Jesus and the apostles already told us. The intention of the creed was to explain the Bible, not compete with it. This is what Jesus taught us about himself. This is what the prophets prophesied about Jesus. This is what the church has always believed, and here's what we're giving to you. Right? They're not saying, we're Chalcedon, we're the authority. They're saying, this is biblical, guys. They are hearkening, not just to tradition, but to the Bible. They're trying to tell us what the Bible teaches. That's what creeds do. The creeds defend the truth from error and they teach Christians what to believe about the Bible. And they hold up the truth of Scripture for all. So let's conclude with this. Why Chalcedon then? Why not Nicaea? Why not the Apostles' Creed? Why Chalcedon? I would actually love, I probably will at some point teach a sermon series through the Apostles' Creed and through the Nicene Creed. That's on the table. But the reason we're doing Chalcedon is because if you remember, what was the subject matter? of what we confessed in church today. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. And why is that relevant? Because Christmas begins next week. I want us to look at Chalcedon because this is the church's attempt to take not the truth at large, but to specifically take what does it mean that God was made flesh? What does that mean? How do we understand that? Who is Jesus? The most important question you can ask. I know what they say, but who do you say that I am? Anyone can commonly confess, yeah, Jesus 
took on flesh and entered mint. What does that mean? How do we understand that? What Chalcedon helps us do is it helps us dive deep into the true meaning of Christmas. What is this incarnation? How do we understand it? This ecumenical council met from October 8th to November 1st in 451 to clarify something from the Nicene Creed that they think needed more elaboration. Who is Jesus? That's what we're going to look at. As uh, John chapter 1 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. My hope is that as we work through the Bible and this creed, that we will come to better understand what that verse means. And so to steal from one pastor, it is my hope that this Advent season, this coming Christmas season, Redeemer Christian Fellowship, all of us would have a merry, merry Chalcedonian Christmas. Christmas. 